0: episode of the second season of the Lodestone Training Consulting Podcast. I'm Jared Ross.
1: I'm Chris Johnson.
0: And we're looking forward to, to talking to you today and, and sharing some of our thoughts. So today's topic is going to be the light fighter. Uh, to start off with, for um, some of the upcoming training for the for about 30 days out, we have January 23rd, which is going to be four women. And uh, that four women Seminar is uh, For Women EDC, or Everyday Carry. That's going to be January 23rd at F3 Tactical in Chantilly, Virginia. For the 60 days out, we have uh, February 26th. That is the uh, Rifle Low Light Class. So this will be um, a class where we're going to be using rifles and teaching how to use and employ flashlights, as well as getting into some night vision and, uh, and using lasers. And one of the nice things about this is we have loners. So you don't necessarily have to have night vision equipment. We'll have something you'll be able to use as you go about that course of fire. And then coming up for the 980s out, we have March 20th, Land Navigation Seminar.
1: This is a great place to come get started. If you don't know how to navigate and find yourself, if you're depending on the GPS, come learn the the tools and the tricks and the things that you need to so you can get off that GPS. Also new for this year,
0: we've started a, a book club. So for January, the book that we're reading is Starship Troopers. So One we, of my favorites. We encourage you to read it. And then Friday evening, the 29th of January, we're going to be having a WebEx. So we'll be talking and discussing uh, Starship Troopers, and we invite you to join us. If you're interested, what you need to do is sign up for a newsletter on our website. And then the day prior, so Thursday the 28th, we'll be sending out... A, an email to everyone who signed up on our, for our newsletter, and we'll have the WebEx address and we'll have all the information of how to sign in and how to, how to log in so you can join us as we uh, discuss Starship Troopers. One of the best. Yeah, phenomenal book. All right, so today uh, what we're going to be talking about is um, the theme is uh, light fighter. Now, this is something that we have talked about. Maybe you've heard about it if you've been to some of our classes, but it's something we've all, we've been discussing and talking about for, for a long time. And really it's kind of been part of our, our master plan where everything that we've been doing and teaching in our seminars and everything is to try to help create that, that light fighter. So if you've never heard of that term before, um, we'll briefly discuss and, and I'll tell you what, what it is. Um, so, a light fighter is similar to to like light infantry. Really, it's it's that individual, and it's what you can carry on you, and and it's that proper mentality, so you can can handle that situation and and take on that fight.
1: And it, you know, it's uh, it's easy to think of the infantry. You know, that's a, a professional soldier. The light fighter doesn't necessarily have to be that professional soldier. Throughout the his, history, it hasn't been the professional soldier. It was the individual that had uh, responsibility, that whether it was love of community or uh, sense of duty, sought out the equipment that he or she needed, uh, the training that they needed, and would come together in the common defense of their community.
0: So in preparation for this, this podcast, we've done some research and, you know, we've kind of explored that idea of the light fighter and kind of where it originated from.
1: And I mean, I'll be honest, this is kind of a hobby for me. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna say I'm a history nerd, but I definitely enjoy it. Uh, I'm not as well-versed as some people out there, but I definitely enjoy looking and, and reading and studying these things out. Thinking the concept of the light fighter, the, the citizen soldier, the, um, the individual that has that responsibility. Um, one of the first historical references that comes to mind is the hoplite, the, the Greek hoplite. So you had your Greek city-states where, you know, Sparta, we all know the Spartans. They had that professional army that was every citizen is a soldier. They would leave home at a young age and go get trained, and they were in martial service throughout their lives. You had Athens that was a little bit different, where they had a a minimum of a two-year requirement that they would go and uh, serve and train and learn these things, and then when they were called upon... They would be gathered up and then, you know, the other city-states throughout Greece, similar to different concepts. But one of the things that stuck out about the the hoplite and why it's called the hoplite was that's the ancient Greek word for equipment or tool. So it would be our modern-day equivalent would be if we called, you know, the, the light fighter kits because, you know, we refer to our equipment as our kit, right? So um, – these citizen soldiers, they would purchase their own equipment. It wasn't uh, brought to them by the the state or the, the city or the government. They were responsible for showing up with a shield, a helmet, body armor, a spear, a short sword, and be ready to uh, train and practice together in the common defense. It's funny. Uh, Going through the the histories of this, and you see this today, they had uh, a common joke was the guy that would show up at Parade and he'd have the ostrich-plumed armor. All I mean, it's so expensive. It's made of the finest materials. But he was also the same guy that when combat came to the the city-state and they were in the phalanx, he was the one that this fine armor was now painted brown because he uh, he had soiled himself. He had soiled himself yeah, when uh, uh-huh. when the time came. You yeah, know? that's yeah.
0: funny how some things
1: never change. it never changes. Yeah. And so on that, you know, why it's a joke is people will focus more on the equipment and not the training and not the mentality behind it. Where you know you had people that showed up and they just had linen armor, I mean fabric body armor, but they were successful because they trained and they were professional at their craft and when they were called upon to you know defend their community they were successful in doing that not because they had the ostrich plumed helmet but because they had the best that they could afford they had the best that they could get their hands on and they made value out of it
0: one of the very it reminds me one of the very first uh, groups that i started teaching and training with my goodness 10 years Plus now, um, really good group of guys who uh, who are pretty serious, but they started getting into uh, you know keeping up with the Joneses. Oh, that's a good rifle. Well, I spent more on my rifle, and and they started spending a lot of money on on kit and a lot of money on uh, on rifles, and uh, there's which is you know that's fine in of itself, but they started getting into that mentality that you know I'm better, I can perform better because I have you know better than you. And and I remember um they really started to I don't know, get a little high on themselves. So uh the next training session I went there I went with a uh I think it was something like a nine dollar and seventy five cent uh Chinese made um bandolier. You know, so they all had these <laughs> super expensive uh, you know. <clears throat> Vests and, and armor and stuff that they're wearing in here. I just had this cheap little thing I bought from you know the local flea market for you know less than ten bucks, which is a Chinese AK you know chest rig and, and outperformed all of them. Again, it's it's not necessarily you know good kit is good, but it's not the kit that makes the makes the man. It's not the kit that makes the the light fighter. No, no, it, it's that individual.
1: Well, you know, going forward in history, the next big Western power we have Rome, mm-hmm. and you know there was the Roman legions now, now we're talking about having that proper equipment that's provided by the state and the the proper training and people are that professional soldier where they're going to um, they're spending 20 years in the ranks before they even have a chance to, you know, separate from the military. Yeah. You have throughout like the Iberian Peninsula. So Spain, that area, you have a lot of um the, Imitation legions, so they would take the exact same equipment that the Roman legion had. I mean, they took the, the cry plate carrier, they took the Ops corps helmet, they took the, you know, um, Mark 18, and they equipped their people with it. But their mentality was, well, we gave you the equipment, and now you can do. Yeah, They didn't look beyond that it wasn't the equipment that made the man. You know, you and I both know this from our experiences. Green Brays. Yeah, the equipment is really nice, but how often do you find yourself, hey, I'm showing up in Country X and I've got to use the local kit. I've got to use the local garb. So I better know my techniques, not the technology.
0: Yeah. So, you know, a- after Rome, then you know, when we get in the Middle Ages again, that idea of the light fighter. So you have, you have, knights and you have other professional soldiers but that that light fighter usually wasn't as well equipped um and, and their role really was being used to uh you know as skirmishers and, and other things they're on the outlying of of that main force of that main group um so since they weren't professional soldiers, and since they didn't have a lot of that that kind of support, you know, I, I don't have a train or a, or a horse to carry my equipment. Really, they were limited to what they could actually carry on them, and and that's what they were
1: removing to. And things had to be multi purpose. Yeah, you know, my my spear not only was my spear, but it was also my tent pole. Mm-hmm. That that was one of the things reading about the um, the first crusade that the that just blew my mind thinking, you know. There was a story I read about a, a man who his spear broke and he was devastated because it was raining and that was what he was using as his temple. As his tent and you know now he's gonna suffer in the rain. Yeah. You know, at curse of the infantry, right? He's gonna right. suffer in the rain. So the um, the Middle Ages. This is where we, as Westerners, we have this sense of I have a duty. To have my and have and maintain my own equipment. Um, this is where the Second Amendment comes from. This responsibility to have your stuff that, if if need of common defense, we can gather. This grows out of that time. Um, you start looking back at the Magna Carta. That this is where these documents that were written there that support and were kind of the um, the groundwork for the Constitution. This is where it comes from this time in history we had not just our responsibility to the you know the landowner that we farmed and you know the surf whatever mm-hmm. um but the individuals as the, the community themselves they looked to one another uh some funny fascinating things start showing up here so you have like the um it's a feudal society you've got the noble he can he controls his land all that but the india other individuals start holding each other accountable. So there was a penalty that if your uh, your belly hung over your belt. So the rank and file, the, the individuals, they would look to each other and be like, okay, you're not a light fighter. You're not one of us. You can't go do what we need to do because you've let yourself go. Now you're fine to go be a pikeman and go stand in the line mm-hmm. and have the cavalry charge at you, but you're not going to come with us. And the, I mean, it, there is a, a historical account where they were actually finding a guy and he was, you know, like trying to barter this with like produce and farm animals and, you know, try and pay, to, pay his his, uh, his fat debt uh, what it was. Because he had made a promise to the community that, hey, I, I, when the time is, is come, I will be fit to be able to perform my duties. You know, um, we live in a different society now where technology is made a little easier. If you and I have to travel 50 miles, well, 50 miles, oh, I can do that in a day easily. I can do that in an hour easily. We're talking about a time where, hey, we need to travel 50 miles, and we need to do it in a day. And at the other end of it, you have to be ready to fight. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I, I know me personally uh, I would have to pay a fat tax because my, my belly does slightly hang over my belt. Um, <laughs> uh, chuckle at that one. But, um, you know, it, it's interesting where these things came from and how other people will sometimes not necessarily hold you to a standard, but they will cause you to want to be better. Yeah. And I, you, you mentioned the keeping up with the Joneses. That's a danger. Like, oh, I can, I can spin myself out of this problem. Uh, what I like is, hey, that guy shot better than me. I can shoot. Yeah. Or hey, that guy has, you know, he's carrying more weight. I know I can carry more weight, and that's what we need to do to challenge each other.
0: I was reminded uh, what, what, what you're talking about that kind of off topic, but uh, what side of the road do they drive on in in England? The wrong side. Huh. So what side? The right side. No, no, they don't drive on the right side. What side? No, they,
1: they drive on the wrong side.
0: Okay, yeah. Yeah, so which is what the left side? Yeah, yeah. 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 And and us, what, what side do we drive on? On the right side? The correct side. Yeah. And do you know why? Or some of the historical backing as why that is?
1: They've tried to make something up about you know, that that's where the, the knight held his shield and and all those things. Uh-huh. yeah, yeah. 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 So when you're on the
0: left, that means you have your right arm or your strong arm that you can you can swing and mm-hmm. you can smite those peasants. But the rest of us peasants, like over here in, in the colonies, you know, we're, we weren't permitted to uh, to ride our horse on that side of the road. So we had to ride our horse on, on the right side. So our, our strong arm couldn't threaten the, the, the nobility um, if they were, you know, traveling opposite us. Anyways, that's don't know if that's true or not. It was told to me by a... Uh, very seasoned uh, unwise green beret so Mm -hmm. I I tend to believe he's the same guy who uh, after um, after a long hard day of running a safawa class and we're all kind of actually weak and we're all at at his place enjoying some good barbecue and he's there going eating his uh, his, his, uh, ribs barbecue ribs men do you know why pork tastes so good and we're like uh, no no why because it's the closest thing to man
1: <laughs> hey, long pork man, that's right. long pork. Uh, good
0: times. Yeah, Anyways, yeah. so with the Middle Ages that rolls into uh you know into the Napoleonic mm-hmm. era, and that's where things really start to get you know, similar and, and close to us. So you have um, you have normal line troops, and then you have those those skirmishers, or you have that that light infantry, or or those light fighters, and and there, there's some difference. Um, a lot of the times they took the um, Guys who have a background as as hunters, uh, woodsmen, guys who have can operate independently and they can travel through the woods. They've you know hunted, like so they have these basic skills and abilities that are different and a little bit better than the typical farmer or the other conscript. So those conscripts in the line units, they usually had muskets and everything they would do would be um, volley fire. And they were very regimented and very very organized as they'd move in their little chess pieces and and, and they their were blocks. looked at
1: as cannon fodder pretty much that is
0: where the term comes from, but then they gave rifles and they gave better equipment um to the guys who could who already had the, those skills and uh, it was really a, a place that a lot of people wanted to be because volley fire was uh in in those set pieces that that's where most of the opposition was aimed at. That's where they had the cannons, and then other, you know, your opposing uh, line units, you know, go and kind of stand toe to toe and try to slug it out. Um, but those light fighters, or those skirmishers, or the light infantry, they were a much more maneuverable. They could uh, quite often they would avoid a lot of the um, mass casualties and, and everything. It's just a whole different type of mindset those individuals.
1: And using those as a commander, uh, you know, versus. I have this big block of movement that is a, a blunt object. If I, I need to have something that's decisive, having that scalpel, having that that man with a rifle. Mm-hmm. And now we start looking into some of those modern thoughts on how a few individuals can harass an entire company or a battalion mm-hmm. and do significant damage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, those. Those principles, they're
0: they're sound. Um, Completely different environment. Uh, When I was, uh, my goodness, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, one of my uncles gave me a a book on on Shaka Zulu and started reading biography on him and his life, and just fascinating. And they, too, um, as he grew up in in the military, they, too, had their, their set pieces. They had their organized form of warfare where they would stand a specific distance from each other. And in in units, they would be throwing spears at each other and causing some casualties, maybe not some. You know, very similar, I think, to some of the things I read in from uh, David Grossman, where you have in the Revolutionary War, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the Civil War, where they'd be in these set pieces and these large groups with volley war, you know, volley fire, where you'd have some individuals, maybe they were aiming, maybe they were trying to to defeat the enemy. But a lot of them were incapable of it, so they would just, you know, shoot high. Yeah, they...
1: they would would shoot. Or or not shoot and just keep reloading that same musket. Yeah, yeah. Until they'd fill the barrel with mm-hmm. lead, yeah. So again, um,
0: Shaka, he went into this same you know, similar though different technology, similar environment. So he thought this was silly. So some of the things he did to revolutionize warfare amongst them was he uh, we need to be mobile. We need to be faster. So he found the sandals that they wore in that environment to be uh cumbersome so he kicked off his and he had his men take off their sandals and run around for a while and harden up their feet so um that allowed them to be faster and more maneuverable another thing he did is he took the that traditional long spear they used for for throwing he uh shortened it he made the uh, the shaft itself thicker and then put a much larger and longer uh blade or or head on it so now when they and sometimes you know with a smaller number of, of troops when they went to meet these guys who were used to we're going to be in these big formations and we're going to throw these spears they would run right up to them and engage them fast and, be, and engage them close and just overwhelm larger numbers of forces just through this these new techniques you know through the, these principles of, of being a life fighter being fast, good mentality um, more maneuverable we're going to carry with what we got we're going to hit Once we hit, then we're going to run. And through that, he was able to conquer a wide area, almost, I believe, is almost as large as the size of Europe. He was able to conquer, you know, a very quote-unquote primitive type technology. But just through uh, changing the mode of warfare and adopting this light fighter uh, mentality, it's pretty amazing what he was able to do. So now we move to the time really... uh, where things really start to change for us and where we start to get our own, uh, I guess, history, our own background, our own, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Our legacy. Okay, yeah. That's where we start to get our own legacy of of being light fighters. And that's when we have the, the colonies here as well as the French. So we now we have these French and the British who already have a tradition, you know, for a couple hundred years of not, not liking each other. Well, not liking each other, but but of of what they knew continentally as as light fighters and and their experience. So now they're here and they're starting to interact with the Native Americans. And this starts to form this this hybrid or this fusion of um of light fighters and really the French and Indian War was the first real uh conflict where these types of troops are really being employed and being used on, on both sides. Um, and one of the more famous ones that, again, are direct lineage, you know, both with the 82nd as well as, as, uh, as Green Berets from the regiment. Tell us about Rogers Rangers. <laughs> I'm not a ranger. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but we, we trace our... our no, yeah, our- yeah.
1: Um, this is where we start to have the, the concept of we're going to use the tactics and the techniques that the native americans but we're going to implement not only their tactics but we're going to implement our technology Mm -hmm. we're going to take everything that works Uh, i was listening to a a discussion about the what what is the american blade is it the buoy knife well the buoy knife is just technically uh, a different shaped uh, sax and you know so so what is that blade that that the blade is the a tomahawk. tomahawk. It yeah. is a tomahawk. That is the American weapon, the, the edged weapon of, of the America.
0: I, I'm not going to lie. Uh, after I got to be friends with uh, Martin from Mossy Forge, he may have, have forged a couple of uh, fighting uh, axes for me that may have followed me to uh, a couple different locations uh, around this here world. Yeah. It's a useful piece of kit. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So Rogers Rangers, uh, he's famous for coming up with this 28 rules uh, for
1: ranging. And And at which point we are now going to brief you on all 28 rules. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to spend that much time. But you should look them up. Uh, But the first one has an example. All rangers are to be
0: subject to the rules and articles of war to appear at roll call every evening on their own parade, equipped each with a flintlock, 60 rounds of powder and ball, and a hatchet. The tomahawk at which time an officer from each company is to inspect the same to see that they are in order, so as they are to be ready on any emergency to march at a minute's warning. And before they are dismissed, the necessary guards are to be set and scouts for the next day to be appointed. So that's just the first of, of 28. So all of these rules and these ideas that now are being uh, formalized, Formalized, yeah, that are now being formalized to teach and to prepare these men so they can be effective.
1: And they're holding, they're holding each other together. Their their accountability comes from their community. You know, this wasn't an organization that was chartered by the king. So in, in addition to that,
0: as I just listed some of their, you know, what they're expected to have on them, they're expected to be able to, to fight, but also they're not being overburdened with unnecessary things. To,
1: Absolutely. So they have to be able to, to travel and to move. And it, it's a fine balance. you think about 60 rounds, that's not a lot. I mean, when you think about what we carry. It's two mags. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, 210 is a minimum basic load. Uh, Different style of warfare. You know, it was a hit-and-run tactic. They were taking those well-aimed shots and then moving. Uh, They were using the the techniques of their time to their benefit. So after the French and Indian War, and now we're starting to
0: set up these uh, these examples and this legacy of, of of rogers rangers this legacy of these light fighters now we get into the revolutionary war and we
1: have the colonial militia and we have minutemen two different things we often think of the the minutemen was the colonial militia yes they, they were part of the militia but the minutemen were a standard above and they were individuals that were selected uh, because of their prowess with their equipment, because of their willingness to serve, their desire to be ready and to defend the community, they trained harder and longer and more than anyone else. So you'd have your normal, hey, it's it's that time of year again. Everyone get in the town square. We're going to line up and go march to the field and send off a couple of volley fires. The Minutemen were doing that once a week. They were getting together, making sure that they could be counted on, and that they were recognized as individuals that could be counted on. They were held in esteem amongst the community.
0: One of my favorite uh, stories about a Minute men, and if you haven't heard of them, boy, you should you should look them up. And that's uh, Samuel Whitmore. So, uh, at the age of eighty, or some people say seventy-eight, but whatever. Uh, old as, dude. Yeah, as an old man. Um, he was working in his fields near Boston and then he, uh, noticed the Redcoats were coming. So this was April 19th, 1775. And he was, a, an experienced soldier where he fought in the French and Indian war. He'd fought in some other conflicts as well. He'd picked up a bunch of, uh, uh, trophies along the way. He had a, a dueling saber that he picked up. He picked up some, uh, some braces, uh, a brace of pistols, and, and some other things in his conflicts that he had experienced. So here it is, April 19th, 1775. The Redcoats are coming. The town's getting the uh, the alerts of this old man. He grabs his musket, his tool dueling pistols, and his saber, and he goes out with the rest of them, and he crouches behind a stone wall. And uh, as the Redcoats are coming close, some of his uh, his neighbors... Some of the other Minutemen, they start shooting, harassing, and then they, they break and run. You know, good guerrilla tactics. We're going to shoot and then we're going to move. He stuck around. And then as the Redcoats came up to uh, on the road next to the wall where he was at, that's when he shot and killed one with his musket. That's when he pulled out his two uh, dueling pistols, shot a couple more, and then he pulled out his saber and he charged them. <laughs> so as he charged, he gets shot in the face. Uh by a British soldier, he goes to the ground. Um, he starts to get, uh, he gets bayoneted a couple times. And then the soldiers move uh, over top of him. Uh, he was stabbed, I believe, 13 times with bayonets. And uh, so after the Redcoats moved over top of him and, and went past him, uh, some of his friends came out to, to take care of his body because they knew he was dead. And when they got out there, he wasn't dead. Even though he had part of his face shot off by a, a British musket, he was in the process of trying to reload his, his musket. <laughs> and uh, so they um, carried him away, expecting him to die, and uh, he lived 18 years uh, after that. So he lived to be the ripe old age of, of, of 98 when he, when he finally passed. So he lived long enough to see uh, the revolution win and, and then also to, to see the formation of our country. So, so that old guy, you know, with lots of experience, um, when the time came.
1: He did what was necessary. Yeah,
0: he took the fight to him. Pretty cool guy. And that, there's you know, more information about him. You can read about him. And, again, his name is uh, Samuel Whitmore.
1: So individual getting shot in the face, talking about the light fighter. Mm-hmm. We have to go to, and I, I apologize, I am not finished I have a very, very fat tongue. I have an accent. but uh, So, Simone Haya, 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 the Finnish sniper. It was the Finnish-Soviet uh, uh, okay. conflict uh, with his Mosin-Nagant. Um, <laughs> I mean, the man has like 400-some-odd kills. Uh, it's uh, – oh, shoot, I, I wish I knew the exact number. But it was one individual as the light fighter, he would take out the ammunition that he needed, he would take limited food that he needed, he would go and he would track these companies of Russian soldiers. He would track these artillery batteries. And he would sit there in his you know, white overcoat in the snow, taking mouthfuls of snow to cool his breath so he wasn't giving away his position. And he would take shots and he would kill one guy. And then he'd move. And then he'd kill another guy and then move. He was like a ghost. Yeah. And the Russians were terrified of him. Guy gets shot in the face, goes back out and does it again. <laughs> I mean, it's, you, you read these accounts of these light fighters, these men that do what is necessary with not the, I mean, the guy had a Mosin. I mean, it, it's a, it's a rifle. <laughs> I mean, it, it's accurate ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not necessarily, you know, uh, high-end sniper rifle that is designed to be fired in uh, all manner of conditions. It wasn't suppressed. It didn't have a fancy scope. He didn't have a spotter. He had iron sights. But he used the equipment and the techniques that were necessary to harass those invaders of his country and be able to push them back. That's a light fighter.
0: Yeah. You know, World War Two. You know, we talk a lot and with our background. You know, a lot of stuff that went on in Europe, but also you have an example of, of the Marine Raiders and their uh, their raid on uh, Macon Island. I think it was what seventeen eighteen August of nineteen forty two. So it was one of the very first offensive mm-hmm. actions that we took. And and same thing, guys, lightly equipped, lightly armed, they went in, snuck in, hit uh, the the Japanese held island. Uh, They're looking to capture some Japanese for intelligence and also you know to to reconnoiter and then also, you know, to destroy, uh, the facilities there. They, uh, they snuck in on, on subs. They were, they took a sub, I think it's two subs that they took, but the two, anyways, they subs got there, got out on, on rubber boats, swam on the shore, went ahead and, you know, and did the attack and, and again, lightly armed, um, and, uh, were, were successful. Um, the exfil was a little rough they had a little time getting out a lot of them initially got out but then rough seas um, some of them were there for a little while before for a couple of days before they finally got them all out but again that that same legacy that same idea that that effectiveness of um, motivated and uh you know lightly armed fast-moving um men you know those light fighters so that kind of brings us up to you know let's now move it forward to to the modern era and let's talk specifically about you know us and with our background with both the 82nd Airborne as well as as Green Berets
1: so you talk about the legacy and and the um coming from the 82nd where I remember I showed up to division I was there for less than two weeks and we were jumping into JRTC which is a training facility down in uh, Louisiana. It's about a foot underneath, underneath the water it, across the entire place. It's a, a swamp mess, uh, horrible place. Um, but I had to know the entire plan. I was a private, but I had to know when I got on the ground what the entire company was supposed to do because we could find ourselves in that situation. That, that came from that legacy of World War II, jumping in behind enemy lines and company commanders gone. Platoon sergeant's gone. You know, some corporal is now running as the first sergeant. Things like that. And that's the way that we, uh, we were taught and trained that as the individual, as the, the light fighter, we were ready and we were prepared. And we were going to do what was necessary to make mission happen. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't know any different. That was just the way it was. You, yeah. had, to, you had to know the plan. You had to be prepared for the LGOPP. Little group of pissed off paratroopers. You find yourself on the drop zone. You find up with, you link up with other guys like yourself. You may be from different platoons or different companies. You may not even have the same job. But we all have, know what a mission is, and we're going to get there, and we're going to make that happen. And we did.
0: You know, I noticed. It, I really didn't realize until until to uh, the Q course. Absolutely. When I was going through SUT, and I was there with. And I might have you mentioned this at like one of our first podcasts, but I was there with, um, we had other 11 Bravos, other infantry guys, but we had some who were from uh, Ranger Bat. They're really good. Um, myself from the 82nd. And then we had like someone from the 101st and then some of the other infantry units and the guys from the other infantry units just didn't have that concept. They didn't have the legacy of the no, light fighter. No, not at all. Not at all. 101st is pretty good. Um in eighty second, of course, really good. And the guys in Ranger Bat again, really good.
1: Because what we were were light fighters. Yeah. We were that light infantry. We didn't depend on formations. We didn't depend on mechanized support. We didn't shoot, we didn't depend on artillery. I mean, we had sixties, sixty millimeter mortars to the company. And don't get me wrong, I love my I love artillery. I love air power. I'm a big fan of calling for fire. Uh but as that light fighter, we didn't have that option. Yeah. So, we knew how to work without it, and you start working with some of these other units, and they're used to these massive controlled exercises and these massive controlled movements. You know, guys that have been downrange, but they didn't necessarily know how to plan or do anything yeah. because
0: all, all they were was a cog and you know yeah, it, it,
1: <laughs> in big machine. It, I felt like I was working with can of fodder. That oh no, I, I move straight and then turn left. This is. This is going to hurt somebody's feelings, um, some rigorous feelings, but, you know, my experience was
0: in, in, uh, in division, similar to yours. I was only there a couple of weeks and we did a combat jump into JRTC and here I was only in a couple of weeks, but I knew the plan. I knew the, <laughs> I knew the, the topography. I knew where I needed to go. I knew you know once I hit the ground and landed the direction I needed to go, I knew all that stuff. So my biggest concern was I better not be the last guy there. I better yeah. not oh, be yeah. the last yeah. guy. So I, I land, and uh, it was at night, combat jump, and I'm all tangled up in, like, uh, suspension lines and everything as the chute just you know, land on top of me. So what did I do? Uh, I, better, I better not be the last guy. So uh, thankfully it's what we call a hop and pop. So you just get the, out of the chute and stuff it in the, in the, uh, the aviator kit bag. And leave it there, and it can go. So uh, I was like, I can't be the last guy. So I busted out my Gerber, and I cut through the suspension lines. to cut myself free. And then I uh, shoved it all in that in that chute, I mean, in the aviator kit bag, and then and took off running. figuring, oh, well, I'm not going to be the last guy. <laughs> I'm sure some rigger who opened that thing up was just horrified what what happened. But it, anyways, I, I knew the plan, and I knew I better not be the last well, guy there.
1: You, you mentioned – I knew where I needed to go. You also had the equipment. You had a compass. Yeah. That was one of the things that was weird. I, I find myself in selection, and we're sitting there. We're doing a little land-nav class before we go out and do a practical exercise. And one of the other infantry guys from a different, not a 82nd, not a Ranger, Yeah, um, he's like, yeah, we don't carry compasses. The squad leader carries a compass. <laughs> and I just looked at him like bro, I've carried a compass since I was a private. Like, I mean, like you, I had two compasses because one is none. You know, you, hey, what do you mean you don't carry a compass? Yeah. Staggering. Yeah.
0: So, you know, again, with that background, with that legacy, with with that experience, that is, it has come down to those are the individuals who can operate on their own if necessary. Um, Instead of, everything being fed to you and not knowing how to think for yourself and not having the experience figuring out those problems. Um, those individuals, then they're, they're just stuck and, you know, deer in the headlights, not, not sure what to do instead of being able to, to flow and to
1: move with whatever the situation might be. You may not be in charge, Yeah, but someone needs to take charge and then, you know, that could be you. And,
0: you know, with that, That's one of my personal experiences that I've had in combat, both with the 82nd, and then also my experiences in group, is when you're in that moment, you might be that that little, you know, the the most junior individual there. But if no one's taking charge, and you see clearly this is where we need to move, or this is where we need to, to go, or what we need to do, Um, there's nothing wrong within that moment, that individual saying, hey, move to the left, move right, go to cover, uh, direct fire. And then once everyone starts to get oriented, then that chain of command can kick in and, and you can do things. But it's not being afraid to take the initiative in that moment where if you haven't been raised, if you haven't been brought up in that type of environment, Then you could see clearly this is what needs to happen, but, but I'm the private or I'm just a specialist or or I'm just a buck sergeant or, you know, whatever, I'm just whatever. So I, I need to keep my mouth shut and wait to, to do what I'm told. And that's in those moments that that's detrimental. You need to be able to fluidly be the leader or fluidly, you know, be the follower and pride should have nothing to do with that. That's all encapsulated in that moment, whatever needs to happen, that that's, that's what, that's what needs to happen. Um, and that's one thing that I really learned from from the 82nd, from my experience with the 82nd. One thing that I think this is a good time to, to point out, and kind of where I wanted to direct this podcast, is talking about, you know, this is a neat history lesson. I enjoy some of the stuff, um, but really, how does that apply to us? We've been talking so much about the light fighter and these different examples, but but how does it really apply to us? How does it apply to? Um, to my wife in case there's a home invasion? How does that apply to I'm in my car and now someone's trying to carjack my car or whatever the case may be. I'm in my place of business and, and it's it's getting robbed. How does that apply? Well, what you need to do is you need to think about what are my circumstances? What are my real-world threats? What, um, what are my real-world tools that are at hand? Um, one of the things that we've talked about before and that I want to talk about now is the difference between being... Uh, a light fighter and direct action or or cqb i think too many people watch movies see the swat team see whatever and they think oh that's what i need to be i need to have you know the level five plus body armor i I need to be you know a walking eod guy with well in call of
1: duty this is what i you know outfit my avatar with
0: exactly exactly and that's a that's a problem that a lot of people see. They see this and think this is what uh, I should aspire to or this is what real kit is. And, and, you know, l- let's be honest. Um, you can share your experiences with a second, but, but my own. Every time where I've had heavy body armor and stuff that I've used when I'm doing CQB, I'm, I'm working out of a truck. Oh yeah. So, somebody is transporting me there. I'm jumping out of that truck. I'm jumping out of that helicopter. I'm fast roping. I'm doing whatever. I'm gonna go do something specific that hopefully is a specific period of time, and then I'm gonna then I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna get X filled out of there, or I'm gonna be able to go back to that truck. Or I'm gonna be able to get resupplied, and I'm gonna be you know I have all that support stuff there. But the other times when hey, you're gonna be going out and you're gonna patrol on foot for. Hours a day, multiple days. I'm not carrying all that crap. I'm carrying as little as I possibly can because uh, and the it, essentials. Yes, and the essentials. Because if not, then there's no way I, I can operate. I'm not going to be going in that full, you know, Eagle Industries assaulter kit, and
1: uh, and be able to operate for days on end. <laughs> the Eagle vest. I still have one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey. <laughs> uh, but you're 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 right. That is not an everyday thing. Mm-hmm. That that Eagle vest is for that specific mission um some of the older guys around group would uh look at my generation your generation and uh joke that we were just SWAT cops because you know we deploy downrange we're in the city we get on trucks we drive up to the the objective we get off trucks we hit targets we clear houses we may or may not get in a gunfight in route on Xville or at the objective uh glorified SWAT cops uh, versus their generation where it was scud hunting in you know the desert. And they were that they didn't carry body armor with them because if we make contact with the enemy, we have done something severely wrong. And if we make contact, then we have to use the items that we have and gain fire superiority. And that is going to be our, our protective level. And then later, towards the end of my career, I find myself in a different situation where we're moving more lightly. We're not inside the city. We're not inside Baghdad or in Bakuba or Muktidia. Bakuba. Bakuba. <laughs> yeah. Spend yeah. some time yep. there, yeah. Um, so we changed our tactics. We, we weren't wearing you know, the Eagle vest with the side plates. We were wearing JPCs. We were wearing that, that plate carrier. Um, we looked at our equipment, and you know, there were guys that were like, oh, well, I'm going to carry three magazines because they'll make me lighter. What is our resupply plan? Where is our QRF coming from? Then you start to realize, okay, I'm going to leave my extra radio. I'm going to take this other radio and have a calm window instead of 24-7 you know, instant push-button communication. I may go more old school so that I can have pyro and I can have more magazines mm-hmm. and I can have what I need. And it, you really have to do that assessment of where I'm operating and what I'm doing. So, you know, inside your own home, do you need a plate carrier with seven magazines across the front? If that's the threat that you think is coming through your front door, you might need to think about moving out of Baltimore. <laughs> um, you know, just saying, uh, you know, maybe your neighborhood is, is a little bad. Uh, so, so assess. What do I need? what, what equipment do I need for where I'm at? Um, what do I have in the car? What do I have at my place of business, Mm -hmm. you know, um, what am I carrying with me? Does it serve that multifunction? Is my spirit also a tent pole, you know, um, does this item that I have my water bottle, you know, I carry a metal water bottle instead of a plastic water bottle, because if I find myself, I get stranded somewhere, let's be honest. That's more likely to happen to me than getting a gunfight. You know, my car's going to break down. It's happened to me. Yeah. You know, I haven't gotten a gunfight here in the States, but my car has broken down. I'm stranded. I need to purify water. One of the greatest ways of purifying water or easiest, you know, without anything outside is just boiling it. By just changing that small little thing in my kit, having that steel water bottle allows me access to cooking in that container. You know, think about your equipment and how you can make it multifunction. Absolutely. One of the the things that we
0: do see um, in classes sometimes is uh, a lot of good citizens, not a lot, but, but, you know, good citizens who have have watched those movies or have, have bought into that. So they come and they want to get good training and they want to get good reps in, but they're burdened down by all that heavy you know all, all the body armor looking like you know us when we are most physically fit when we were doing a lot of da a lot of direct action with all that you know heavy body armor again being supported by trucks being supported by other things in order to function and it's just not it's not reasonable uh, and and they're not effective at, at even learning some of the the basics or doing some of the basic stuff in in, in some of the classes so you really need to, to do that self-assessment. What What is my real threat? You know, me, as I've expressed before, my family has experienced, not once, but we've experienced some multiple home invasions uh, when we were living in Fayetteville. So that's real. So then I'm set up to help defend my home in case of, of a home invasion. And, you know, I've, I've got my my AR ready. I've got a couple mags ready. And, and for that situation, I'm I'm good to go.
1: You know, you, you talk about um, people overburdening themselves with equipment. And I think, I think it was you actually that said, you know, you show up for football practice. The first thing we do is we don't throw on all the pads, you know. Yeah. We do some conditioning. We do some drills just wearing our jerseys. That's what we do in group. We don't show up at the range and immediately put everything on. You do it in stages. You have to be able to get the fundamentals and basics and then start adding the complicated problems in. Absolutely, there's a time to put every piece of equipment you have on and then some. And you should probably get a 45-pound plate and strap that on. Yeah. You know, and and make it suck and make it difficult. Um, But not when you're learning. You know, that's when you're being tested. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that is is a difference that you have to figure out for yourself. Am I being tested here? Am I testing something out? Uh, this morning, we were out on the range. We were doing some uh, some bounding drills, and I was being lazy, 100%. This was fingers at Chris, and I, I will tell everyone at my tombstone, it's going to say, here lies Chris Johnson, died because he was lazy. I didn't want to put my plate carrier on for the, uh, the bounding. I didn't want to grab a rack out of the, the car. So I was just running with my, my uh, war belt on. And what happened? And uh, there I am. I dive down behind that little piece of cover, and uh, one of my magazines goes flying out of my taco pouch. Yes, it did. And, you know, I felt it. I knew that it happened. I needed to keep moving forward, and I moved forward without a magazine because, you know, I'm there. I'm down one, you know, 130 rounds because I was too lazy to have my, my kit set up right. Um, but there's a time where we got to test it out. So guess what I know now? Hey, I need to get rid of that taco or I need to put some shot cord on it. You know, the, the, the war belt, and I'm a big believer of drawing off your belt. I've been doing it for years, reloading off your belt and then reloading your belt off your vest. Um, big proponent of that. I think that that's for me, that's the way to go, but you have to test your equipment out and there is a time and place to try that out, but that wasn't the first drill that we did. That was one of the last drills that we did today. You know, we warmed up. We, you know, we we slowly added two. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't running around doing everything in full kit till the end. Uh, and you have to understand the, the basic and, you know, the balance of that.
0: There, there is a time and a place when you should go cold and go hard just as a self-evaluation. Yep. Um, but a- again, it's not, you shouldn't always start that way and you shouldn't always start slow. But it is that good mix and that good balance um for a good training regiment. Um But I yeah, I to to your point, completely one hundred percent agree. So when when it comes down to it, if if, if your life is on the line or, or when you're in that moment, um or when you're protecting others, um, what what are you gonna go to? Uh, you you have that choice. What, what am I comfortable with? What do I have the most familiar familiarity with? What do I use the most, you know, that weapon or or that system? That's the best thing for you to go to. Um, not okay. Now this is the moment and I haven't really, you know, done much, but I'm going to put on that super assaulter vest. I'm going to throw on that, that helmet and I'm going to put all that stuff on it to go face that threat. I've been asked what is the best weapon for home defense And the correct answer is whatever weapon you know the best. That is the best weapon for for, for home defense, whatever that might be. The one you're most comfortable with, the one you know. Um, I'm reminded of the very last thing I did in active duty. My team um, went to to Israel, and we got to work with uh, one of their commando units, and uh, it was a fun time. I did that right before I uh, ETS and got out of active duty. So while we were were there, it's like the first day or the second day, but whenever it was, the very first day when we actually arrived to the base to work with them, we got an in brief and a welcome by their unit's commander, hmm. and uh, he started giving us an oral history of their unit and some of the different exploits and and also you know some of the, the battles that took place. You know, five day war, uh, then. Yom Kippur War, and, and then he said, just without skipping a beat through his, his conversation, right over there, David killed Goliath, and then over here. <laughs> so so when he said that, I'm like grinning ear to ear and looking, Did you guys hear that? That's he, This is where David killed Goliath. And then all those other stupid Americans, you know, on my team just went over their head. And, you know, like, you guys are a bunch of losers. Anyways, I was jazzed about that. um That was pretty cool. So the point that I'm getting to is, so here's the story of David and Goliath. So, uh, David decides, you know, I won't go through the entire story, but when he comes down to visit his brothers to bring them some, some food and rations, here comes Goliath out harassing the Israelites and, uh, the Israelites are afraid to send out a champion to fight Goliath because he's just so big and he's so, you know, so massive and he has a big rep. So, uh, David's like, I'm going to do it because, you know, we're on the Lord's side and, and we shouldn't be afraid of anything. So then, uh, what did Saul do? Well, here's my ops core here's my, my, you know, my, my cry you know, plate carrier. Here's, here's, here's all this stuff. And David's like, I've never worn that crap. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, I'm going to take my little, uh, AR sportster that I've, I've used to, what I, I shot and I, I killed that bear and I shot and killed that, that, that wolf or whatever that's was trying to, to get my flocks. So he, he, as one of the ultimate life fighters, like disregarded all of the, the armor and the trappings the we- and the weaponry and everything that, that Saul offered him. And what did he do? He went out with a sling, picked up some stones that he thought would work for him. He was light on his feet. And uh, that light fighter took out that big, massive, you know, Goliath, um, popped him in the head, knocked him down, and then went up and took the sword from Goliath, Goliath's own sword and cut his head off. Um, and you know, that's, Really, I think a good illustration of of the capabilities and what you can do with with this thought, with this mentality. So uh, that that was a fun trip. This is where David killed Goliath. I'm <laughs> still jazzed about that. See right there, guys. And then you know, all those stupid Americans, huh? What? what am I don't know what you're talking about. Anyways, so let's uh, we've him and hot around about good kit, bad kit. um so let's talk a little bit about what are some good suggestions, and what do we mean? What, what makes a light fighter? What's some of the equipment that 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 makes a light fighter?
1: Maybe you know, going back to the hoplite, you know, what makes a good kit? Yeah, um, we we've, we've really I feel beaten the dead horse about get what you can get. That's the important thing. We're not going to give you a list of buy this a solo boot and buy this you know, Glock shovel and whatnot. It's more of these are the kind of concepts and the areas that you should be looking at to fill in your life. And it's different for everyone. Mm -hmm. But this is a general, you know, a starting point to think about. Uh, You know, first and foremost, a light fighter needs a tool to fight with. So what are the tools that you need? A rifle, a pistol, a fixed blade. They're multifunction. You know, that that rifle it can defend it can also take down game so you know maybe the ruger 10 1022 is not really enough for uh you know the light fighter ar you know it's extremely prevalent i'm got 20 years experience on that platform mm-hmm. 20 plus that's what i carry uh because it's time tested and proven um there are those of you that like to sit there and jump up and down and be like, yes, but my Yugoslavian uh, Yugo car, I never have to put oil in. It just drives and drives and drives. Okay, that's that's cool. You know, I want some more capabilities. And I, I know I have to have be spoiled and mm-hmm. have a Land Rover or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I got heated seats. All right. Um, but, yeah, you need a rifle. It needs to be something that can take interchangeable magazines. You know, you have to have it maintained, not only to defend, but also, you know, think the the other aspects out there. Uh, pistol. Without going down the rabbit hole of what the best pistol or, you know, like Jared said, what do you have? Do you know how to use it? Is it functional? Going into your fixed blade. I'm not saying that you need something that that guy breaks in your house, you're going to go blade on blade with him or things like that. No, you should be using that other weapon that you're more proficient with. But there comes a time where you may need that blade. And just like everything, it's got to be multi function, especially thinking survival stuff, which I'm very interested in Uh, full tang. Good steel, you don't have to have a, a $500 custom, you know, Damascus, whatever, you know, it can be some 1095. It can be a lawnmower blade, you know, <laughs> that's been been uh, reshaped and hardened and yeah. um, good handle, good quality sheath, something that's going to protect it, uh, something that's going to hold a good edge for multiple tasks. You know, if you've got to clean an animal, if you've got to dig with it. You know, speaking of digging, what is an infantryman, a light fighter, without a shovel?
0: Well, before we get in, well, before we get into the shovel, let's stick with, with <laughs> those i I'm a big three. fan of shovels. We can talk about that in a second. Um, but, yeah, that rifle. Comrade says shovel. <laughs> that rifle, uh, pistol, fixed blade, some kind of knife, um, or, or tool like that. I, I yeah, completely agree. Hatchet. And then uh, I think the next thing then is what are you wearing to the, big, to the prom? You know, What are you going to wear? You need to have good sturdy shoes or good boots. Yes. Um, You need to have rugged pants, uh, something that's, that's going to be able to take, you know, abuse and also, you know, a good shirt. Uh, Those things are ideal, especially the shoes, especially the boots. Um, I don't think I've ever shared here, but um, the church that I grew up in, um, the the local congregation, there's this nice lady um, older lady. And I just knew her as a nice, you know, uh, grandma type. And, uh, she's always very pleasant and and chatty and, and talking to people. Um, she just had a funny accent and, uh, it wasn't until after I deployed, went to Afghanistan with the 82nd and got back when I guess she realized that now that I've been to war, um, maybe I'd seen a thing or two and all of a sudden she invited me into her club. Um, and that's when I learned that Elsie, uh, she was a young girl during World War II, and she and her family, they had to flee the Nazis and they fleed the wrong direction. They went to the east instead of the west. So then as they were going east, uh, then they had to realize they had to flee the, the Russians. So then they had to now start uh, heading to the west. To get away from the russians and she spent many a, a year i think running around in the, uh, the polish uh, woods um dealing and experiencing all sorts of, of things that you know she shared some of that stuff with me but the one thing that she kept coming back to me over and over again is she kept saying jared make sure your children always have shoes on make sure they have good shoes make sure that they always have shoes on don't let them go outside barefoot Don't let them not be without their shoes. And what had happened was some of her family, some of her siblings uh, had to flee. And it was either I go back and get my shoes and then I'm caught, potentially killed, thrown into concentration camp or who knows what the ramifications would be, or I need to flee right now. And uh, they had to flee and they fleed in their bare feet and their feet got all lacerated and all cut up because that's what they had to do to get away so uh, I'm just passing on Elsie's advice, make sure you have good shoes, make sure you have good boots um, they're essential and then just from my own experience as being an infantryman and all the miles and miles and miles that I've walked in the woods, in the desert on hardball on sand, uh, you want good boots, you want something solid because uh, as soon as you your feet start to get tore up then uh, you're you're really miserable then then you're you know definitely a lot less effective than what you could be.
1: Um, I jump into the whole uh, you know cool guy fashion thing with my Solomons because mm-hmm. you know that is what is in this year. it's, it's not uh, uh, Merrill's that's not, like, not Merrill's? Yeah. Merrill's is so 2006, okay yeah like you know got to get at the times here, all right uh, We're no longer in Iraq, we're in Syria. we're using Solomons, okay uh, but I will tell you that the from my experience, the best pair of boots doc martin uh when i was in afghanistan um teams getting ready to deploy we know we're going to be there over winter i decided you know what i want a good set of leather boots that i can put kiwi on nice wax keep them semi-waterproof and good wool socks and i brought a pair of doc Martens with me so i find myself in snow wool socks alpaca wool socks that's important and uh Good, good coat of kiwi, my feet were dry and warm. My teammates who had you know, the $400 A Solos, Gore-Tex, feet sweat, get miserable, uh, uncomfortable. The, those boots, the A Solos, they were, they were nice, they were comfortable, they were built really well. My Doc Martens, they were comfortable-ish, but man, they last. And I think the, the comfort that they bring Versus, uh, you know, more comfortable shoes, the durability definitely outweighs it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I have no ex- experience with, with docks
0: like that. My docks were always the low quarters that I, you know, went bonking houses
1: with. Hey, but yeah. I mean. Yeah. They, I still have them. You still have them, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> 25, almost 30 years later. You <laughs> still have them. Resold once, right? Uh, no, actually. The original soles. They weren't resold. Original
0: soles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah. Kind of worn down, but yeah. Original hey.
0: soles. So in addition to, to good boots, um, some of the other things is you're just talking about what's on your body. You want some way to carry spare mags. Um, that can be a belt, that can be a chest rig, that can be whatever, but some way to to carry spare, spare mags. You want a holster and I, uh, yeah, we won't, we don't need to go into holsters, but yeah, you, you need a good holster. Uh, radio is nice to have on you. Some way you can talk to, to family, to friends, to, to others, um, in addition to and this, is in addition to you know whatever your your pace plan is for comms, whether your phone or, or whatever, but a good radio. Um, we well, already mentioned a knife, that fixed blade. Uh, another good idea item is to have a med kit. Again, that's one of the the cultural changes I've seen in the training community. Ten years ago, I'd be lucky if a student showed up with a med kit with an IFAC now more than half of students showing up have some kind of med kit on them, whether it's just a tourniquet or maybe more or if if not a full blowout kit or, or IFAC uh, and then the other thing that you need to have on you is uh is water you want something if you got to move you got to do something you want to be able to, to drink you want to have something to keep yourself hydrated and uh camelback whatever you've mentioned that that and the, the steel water bottle. Yeah, the steel yeah. water bottle. Yeah. Th- those are all good things. And again, we're not telling you this is what you have to have. Um, but the concepts. But the concepts, the concepts. Absolutely. That rifle. Yeah, I, I like the AR platform. Um, but there's nothing wrong with a good AK. As long as you know that AK, it's, it's going to do you just right, as well as other rifles. So again, we're not telling you specifics, but we're giving you these, these concepts and these principles of things to look for, things that are important. Now, the next thing thing is uh is, is in
1: addition to that like the a,
0: bergen <laughs> yeah the bergen the the day pack um something like that now these are now with what you're saying that's yeah. the place for your okay
1: shovel. so here's the shovel i you know i read world or z and ever since then i think we shall carry shovels with us mm-hmm. you know that's yeah spets knots. you never know um it's a tool that is often overlooked but how many times would a shovel improve your life? Uh, you're in that survival situation. You have something that's bigger than your knife mm-hmm. to break brush with. You have something that you can dig a cat hole with if you have to use the facilities and there are no facilities. Uh, you can dig a Dakota hole to build your fire, to disguise your smoke with a shovel. A good collapsible shovel is worth its weight. You know, you just mentioned the
0: Dakota fire hole. Mm-hmm. That's something that when I, First learned that blew my mind. How how awesome is that? I'm really looking forward to uh, our steer environment yes, class yes. because I know there's some good people who are gonna be going to that that their minds are gonna be blown. They've never you know no idea what that is and how effective it is.
1: So versatile. Yeah. Yes. Right. Um, the ability to not dig with your hands. <laughs> you know? Um, like I said, it's worth its weight. Throwing that into your your uh, your day pack. It's going to be something that it's it's worth putting in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, expanding out there, going into the shelter concept. Uh, Jared and I are old enough that when we went through basic training, we carried a shelter half, and our battle buddy carried the other mm-hmm. half of that shelter. Canvas, mind you. Yes, yes. Canvas oh, shelter it was, oh, it was oh, it's so effective. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, oh, you should need you get it tighter. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but having something <clears throat> that you know, we think of shelter. You think of house, tent, uh, tarp. Um, it could be a jacket. A jacket is shelter. You know, it, it's another layer of protection from the environment. I'll tell you, one of the things that I like
0: and that I have used now for for years and will continue to use is um, the modular sleep system that yes. the Army has and that outer Gore-Tex bivy. The bivy. You can yeah. have that thing and then a good whoopee, and uh, unless it's super cold, uh, you can— you can wrap up in that and stay pretty warm and more importantly, stay dry. Yes.
1: Yeah. And you know, that's uh, things that don't necessarily take up a lot of space or add a lot of weight, but add tremendous value. Um, and that's what you're looking here with, with that next layer. And then it, it's changing, you know, you have to have it, it seasonal based, mm-hmm. you know, we're here in the, the North right now. I have a winter bag you know, in the car, um, and I'll tell you, on Freedom Day, I was so glad I had that bag in the car. <laughs> I went into that bag a couple times, yeah, and I was very pleased to find extra socks, extra wool nice. socks in there. Well, hey, that's that's something else. You
0: want to have a couple uh, pairs of socks with that assault pack or that day pack or that that
1: and you want you know you want those spares socks. Um, Nothing makes your day better than being no. able to powder your feet and dry put on dry socks. Yeah. What
0: are some other things? Map map of your area, a map of where you might be going,
1: food. Compass. Yeah. Well, I, I'd have the
0: compass on me. I mean,
1: yes. But hey, having that ability, not depending on the phone, not depending on the GPS. Yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> we are seeing more and more the technology that we rely, rely on every day uh, betraying us and disappearing or not working. Yeah. Uh, we just had the incident down on Christmas where the Nashville area where I just moved from. Anyone that was an AT&T customer no cell coverage no data coverage so if you're depending on google maps or apple maps or whatever to help you get to grandma's house there were people that didn't get to grandma's house on christmas day because they didn't know how to get there so having an atlas having some some maps some backup you know it's stuff that we talk about all the time you have to do the assessment for yourself and see what are the th- what are the holes in your life that you can fill what do you rely on and if you're relying on something you better have a backup for it you know um medication you know that's something that is very easily skipped over a lot of us in this day and age we require certain medications all right so we've you know given some ideas
0: of things I have on you things in that in that uh that day pack and these are good suggestions good suggestions you know to help out that life fighter now Let's wrap this up with when uh, we're not talking kit, but we're talking the individual. What are some characteristics? What are some things in um, for that that individual? For you, what makes a good light fighter? Um, and I think one of the very uh, first things is, is having that good mindset um, that you can be independent, that you can operate independent, and that you're not dependent upon necessarily other people to make up your mind, to make up those decisions, to
1: to come up with a course of action. But then you also have to be able to work well with others. Yes. So you have to be able to be a leader and communicate with others and bring the group up to the task at hand. Or the flip side of that coin, be the follower. Mm -hmm. When someone else is in charge, be able to listen and execute uh, the vision. You know, and
0: that's how our small unit tactics class classes are really structured. They're designed to use that training module that, that training environment to teach principles of leadership as well as those principles of, of being a follower. And it's important for you to be able to, you know, for an individuals grow to be able to, to fluctuate between those two,
1: you definitely have to be able to uh, navigate, you know, yeah. whether it's um, in the woods, you know, or can you navigate in the urban environment? That's right. You know, your car breaks down. Do you know how to get to another location or are you dependent on the, the road system? You know, if you're used to that, that beltway, or if you're used to, you know, driving
0: around to, to get to the other point, but now you need to go across that town, Ferris Bueller style. Exactly. (laughs) Or, or across that neighborhood. Um, Can you do that? And, you know, that might seem simple. That might seem silly, but there's a lot of people who, who can't. Uh, They're just, stuck and and, and don't know how to move.
1: It's having that situational awareness and awareness of where you're at and understanding uh, where things are in in relation to you and working in that, that manner.
0: You know, another thing that's important too is uh, you gotta be in shape. Um, You know, we, we laugh and joke and because one of the things about both of us is we don't take ourselves that serious and I was definitely huffing and puffing this morning. <laughs> it was it was bad. But uh, yeah, I'll just talk about me. Yeah, I've, I've I've got a little got some love handles. Um, but even with that, and a lot of that's genetics. <laughs> you,
1: I've met your yeah, family. Yeah, I I, I, I was going to say you've seen my dad, but he listens to this, so I, I won't say that. I love your dad. Yeah, uh, he's a good mentor of mine. <laughs> but um, I only you, said that because he's listening. Yeah, that's, that's right.
0: But even with, with those genetics, you know, I'm still I've always been able to, to perform. I've always been able to, you know, meet those, those times with runs or with rocks, you know, and put that weight on my back and, 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 and move forward. And I you know, work out, I run, and I've done all those things to stay in shape. But it doesn't mean staying in shape doesn't necessarily mean I, I need to, you know, look like a model. It's are you in shape enough to, to move? Are you in shape enough? I, I can walk that mile,
1: those two miles, those ten miles, um, with that kit, with that equipment. I, I had a teammate that we uh we joked with him about being an underwear model because when he first showed up the team we did the you know, the background scrub and we found a bunch of pictures of him online where he was posing in his uh multicam bottoms, no shirt on, flexing his abs, <laughs> uh-huh. um, holding a two hundred forty up, you know, we're like okay. Wow. You're not gonna be on the team very long. Um And the guy had beach muscles. I mean, beach muscles for days. But then when it came time to doing the job, he didn't have it. Yeah. And he struggled. And I did not have beach muscles. I do not look like an underwear model. But I was able to do all the things that were asked, even at my elderly age. And and that's really the point, is uh, you need to be
0: in shape. um, And you need to work. You need to, you know, put in that, that effort to, to maintain um, some level of, of physical fitness, not not for looks, but for
1: uh, for ability. Yeah, there you go. It, it, it's not for
0: looks, but but for ability. Yes, so you can you can perform. Um, some of the other things that you really need to do is you need to know how to uh, to treat wounds. Absolutely. Um, whether that's self aid, you know, you need to fix yourself, or uh, also helping others. Uh, you need to have a basic understanding of those things. Um, and, then, and I've mentioned it before and i mentioned it again, with all of my experience and abilities to run a gun, um, I have never done that here stateside. Uh, but with my experience and abilities of of rendering aid, I've been the first person on the scene of multiple car crashes. I have been there with, with accidents that have happened in, in different environments, and that's what has been very helpful. Those are things that I've been able to do, um, and I want to say one of the last ones is the ability to communicate. So not only uh, can I talk to someone and can I, you know, articulate my thoughts or my uh, or understand what's being said to me, but also do I know how to use that telephone? Do I know how to use that radio? Um, and when I am on the radio um, and I'm talking to someone, can I get the information out quickly and uh, convey it? Yeah, coherently, you know, yeah. where, and not just running at the mouth and to, you know stealing oxygen I think all those things there really are are some of the things that make up that life fighter and then I think that the very last thing is is just hey you know, I started with mindset and I'll say with, with that good proper mindset you know that I'm you're a responsible adult and you're gonna do what a responsible adult would would do in, in that situation uh, you're not going to be uh, running on emotions or or be extreme in, in anything you know that, that you do. You're going to maintain that good situational awareness. And uh,
1: you're not going to let your your adrenaline take over. You're yeah. not going to lose control. You're going to maintain that control. Yeah. And you're going to be responsible and accountable for your actions. And not just to others, but you'll hold yourself accountable to those actions.
0: So now that we've, we've had this, this conversation, now that we have talked a little bit about history and these ideas where the of what a light fighter is and then also we've talked about uh, some of the things that you need and that you should be striving for you can take a step back and you can look at everything that LTAC does everything from the most basic uh, pistol seminar to the intel classes uh, land nav classes everything that we do is trying to empower that individual or empower that organization uh, to be a light fighter, to be able to be independent and to take care of yourself. And then if you have that ability to take care of yourself, then you have that ability to reach out and to help others. And that's really that's really what we're, we're striving for is to empower you so you can help others and you can improve and, and help out your community. All right, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for listening to us and uh, listening to the episode one of season two of the LTAC podcast. We look forward to seeing you guys out on the range and see you guys in the classroom. And it's a privilege.
1: You had your whole life to prepare for this moment. Why aren't you ready?